The Social Detective is a true crime podcast meant for adult audiences. Some material might be explicit, contain adult language and descriptions of crimes that aren't suitable for young or sensitive listeners. The contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only. We do provide sources in our show notes for further research for our listeners. We also provide our opinions, which we state in the podcast. We will never post, theorize, or provide information that would endanger a case for the victims, families, or law enforcement. We refuse to sensationalize cases to gain listeners. This podcast will always be a safe space for the families of the victims. Hey fellow true crime lovers, my name is Patrick and I am the host of Not Adding Up. Not Adding Up is a podcast that features cases, as the name implies, don't add up. This can be disappearances, strange deaths, wrongful convictions, unsolved crimes, and other unexplained phenomena. Each week I walk a friend or family member through a case in which they are unfamiliar. I do this to allow them to ask questions I may not have thought of while researching, or that you may have as you listen. The cases I cover range from ones that are well known, to some you may not have heard before. Since the cases I cover don't add up, I always encourage my listeners to form their own theories on what they believe happened, and never present my opinion as fact. Frequently my co-host has a very different theory than my own, which proves the cases I cover are ones that just don't make sense and need to be discussed further. So if you are a true crime lover and find yourself constantly forming your own theories when listening to podcasts, Not Adding Up is perfect for you. Tune in each Friday for new episodes available on all major streaming platforms. Hey guys, before we get into this podcast, I wanted to tell you we're actually doing things a little bit different than we normally do here at Crime Scene and Cupcakes. Number one, we're going to have an amazing guest. You're going to be excited. Number two, We're going to be following a few theories. Now, normally I don't do this. I work with the facts and the facts only. But this case has some really interesting factors to it. And one of the things that gets me is on this factor is there is one piece of evidence on this case that happened. It very openly happened but was completely ignored by media and ignored by a lot of other people. And we want to bring awareness to it because we think it has some very valid points as to how it had have something to do with this case. So my guest and I are going to discuss this. Also, there are some other points where we're going to bring it up And it has gone through in the courts, but it is still at this point, allegedly. And we will utilize that word, allegedly. So until there are factors to back that up, please remember everyone is innocent until proven guilty. So we want to make sure everyone is very clear on that, that we do not single anyone out. We do not utilize anyone's names unless they've already been proven guilty in the court of law. Also, we had some struggles with the audio on this one. I don't know if it's was some problems with, it was definitely from my side. 
Uh, we were utilizing a new program, so we definitely have some struggles with audio. So I want to apologize to the listeners for any of the problems you hear on audio. I promise our following podcast will not be a problem next time. We figured it out, so, but I apologize for this one. Hey guys, it's Marianne, dog mom, baker, true crime podcast maker, and I am so excited today because today we are joining you with a special guest. Today we have Patrick from Not Adding Up. Hey everyone, I'm very excited to be here and I'm very honored that Marianne asked me to come on this episode and do it with her, so very excited. Well, as I had said before, when I had talked about the case of Rachel Geraldine Pratt from Garden City, it took me down a rabbit hole. And it was really cool, first of all, because as I had explained to you before, I didn't even know about the case. It was the Garden City Police Department had actually reached out to me on Twitter and was talking about how there was this cold case that they really wanted to bring awareness to. Number one, I felt honored. And number two, it is amazing to see a police department being so proactive to try to get answers on a cold case. But when I was looking at it, this case sent me down, like I said, it sent me down a rabbit hole and I kept thinking, this case is not adding up. And I thought, Oh my gosh, I need Patrick on this case. <laughs> I'm very glad that I came to mind. Whenever you first told me about it, I like tried to look into it myself and I was like, yeah, I can't really find much. And you're like, oh, you won't find much. And th- over the past few weeks, you just like digging and digging and digging. And it's definitely, it's definitely paid off for you, it seems like. so. Well, and that's something that I did want to bring up. And it, it's something that... I even was discussing with, you know, we were just discussing is I think that's something that sets apart and the indie podcasters is we dig. We are not here to find revenue. We're here to find answers, answers for the family, answers and justice for the victims. And so we dig for answers. And if there is not a lot of articles out there, if there is not something, we dig until we find something. Because we know that there are families and there are people out there who need something. They're never going to get closure, but they need something. And you've been a wonderful resource to have with us. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that. You always go above and beyond with your cases and like going the extra mile with like truly showing that you it's not just like a case it's not just an episode to you but like you're going to do everything you can to work with the families and provide them the resources that you can and help them which is really cool it definitely makes you stick out in my mind well i would never be able to figure out the technology if it wasn't for you (laughs) (laughs) this is one of those factors where old people and young people working together promise we're not going to take up too much time but I did want to get into the case of Rachel Geraldine Pratt unless you have any other business you want to get into today no okay all right so we're going to talk about Rachel Geraldine Pratt who was born on May 8th in 1979 in Garden City Kansas now for those of you who aren't from Kansas which I know you're not Patrick and where do you live again I'm in West Virginia right now. 
I was here for, I've been here for over 10 years now, but I lived in Illinois, so a little closer for a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So definitely closer to Kansas. So yeah. on our border. Yeah. So, well, Garden City is on the other side of the state. It's on the Colorado side of the state. So it's more on the western side of the state, and it's about three hours from Wichita, from where I'm at. And because we always, everything in Kansas is factored from Wichita or from Kansas City. Um, but Garden City only has like a population of about 28,000 people. Um, but it's known for its zoo and swimming pool because it has the largest community park zoo there. And it also has the largest swimming pool. And one of the things I thought was really cool about Garden City, and that's why so many people know about it, is, uh, you know, as I've talked about my family and kind of my crazy history, but I have an Uncle Tommy who was very intricate in working with the zoo and water park there. And so I spent a lot of summers around the zoo and we actually got to ride llamas and those kind of things. So it was pretty cool. Garden City does hold a special place in my heart because, you know, I did spend, you know, quite a few times in my childhood there. And again, it's just incredible to see the police force doing so much to be so active and understand how important social media is in getting these cold cases solved. Um, you see, it's like upsetting. You see sometimes police forces, like even unwilling to share information with other police forces and like them outreaching to totally new, like ways of spreading the word is definitely something that's really cool and hopefully serves as an example. Yeah, exactly. And I, I like you bringing up the point that, you know, we have police forces who are looking at this and they understand how important it is. But then we have police forces who are completely unwilling to even share information with other departments. And, um, you know, I I do a lot of stuff with Uncovered.com and we recently had a police officer who just started a cold case unit. And he was talking about his frustration because he isn't able to get information from other departments. They don't want to share their cold cases with him. And he said the problem is they don't want other police officers to solve their cold cases. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, are you flipping kidding me? You know, and it is. It's it's a constant which it shouldn't be. It should be all about victims' families and getting information for them. But, you know, so we do have that dichotomy of you get some that are just really active and understand how important it is. And then you get those who are closed and they are unwilling to help and unwilling to share. So I definitely want to give the kudos to those law enforcement agencies who are willing to put themselves out there and who are willing to share and make a difference. So yeah, I definitely want to give them the, the props that they deserve. So I, as we're giving that positive shout out, 
when I reached out to the Garden City Police Department, I had heard back from Aaron Reyes. Aaron Reyes is the Public Safety Administration Assistant of the Garden City Police Department. And again, as I've mentioned multiple times prior, it's important for true crime podcasters to have an active relationship with law enforcement. And, you know, you guys have seen me. I I become very frustrated when I see true crime podcasters burn those relationships to the ground. You know, I know there are law enforcement officers who may not always do positive things. But again, we need to build up those relationships if we want to be able to do and be active in assisting with cases. Absolutely. And community cooperation with police is also very important. And like, obviously, if anybody's listened to my show, you know that I'm not afraid to point out some bad policing when it is there. But I also like will always give credit to the good work that is done, because at the end of the day, it is something that is an absolute necessity that we need these like we need police officers, we need police departments. It's something that is never going to go away. So making the relationship just like continuously worse and I don't know like not giving it a chance is that damaging on all fronts Abs- yeah yeah absolutely and, it, and I, I've, I've become very frustrated at sometimes when we are second guessing active cases because I am very aware of the work that happens behind the scenes and especially with the recent Idaho case, there was so much second guessing that was going on. And I was just becoming so frustrated because there is so much work that law enforcement does that people are not aware of. And so many things that we as podcasters can do to damage an active investigation. So I just really appreciate it when podcasters don't go on the attack of an active investigation or before a case has actively been solved or there is any type of information with that because it does really create a problem and yeah i think with going like covering cases that are so recent that's a a very fine line to walk I've only done one case that's been like, I feel like a current event. And that was really mainly to clear the misconceptions that were surrounding that case. And I feel like when you tell the story too quickly and not all the pieces are necessarily there and you don't have as many perspectives, then that can be dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And I know which case you're referring to. And you did an amazing job, I think, of showing all sides to that case and clearing up all information and showing all possibilities and why they were harming the family. Mm-hmm. And so I thought you did an amazing job with that. So it's definitely not a case I would have typically done, but the, yeah. the, the damage it was doing to the family. And like, it seemed like true crime podcasters have all come to a conclusion that was kind of against what the family was wishing. And that just didn't sit right with me. I. Uh, See, and that's what podcasting should be about. That's true crime podcasting is advocating for those who need be advocating for. So, 
I love that. You should always that. take the family's word and the family's wishes with like the most weight. That's what I always, if I can get a hold of a family member, that's always the first thing that I like. That's the, yeah. the golden standard then. Yeah. Absolutely. So, okay. We're going to get back to the topic at hand and that is Rachel Geraldine Pratt. Rachel had kind of an interesting life. Um, now, as I said, she was born in 1979, and she was the oldest of eight kids. Now, that sounds like a lot today, but I was in the middle of eight kids. You know, in the 70s, eight kids is like nothing. And especially around, the, you know, Catholics run rampant in the Midwest. So. <laughs> Um, her parents had separated when she was really young, but she was said to have a really good relationship with both of them. But it's said that her dad moved away fairly soon. Um, her mother had primary custody of the children and Rachel lived with her mom in Garden City. Now, Rachel's mother describes Rachel as having a big heart and she always tried to keep the peace with her siblings. Um, she was always described as a smart and good student with a dream of attending KU, the University of Kansas, Rock Chalk Jayhawk, um, and becoming a pediatrician. That's my alum, so I'm a little partial. Um, she also ran track played basketball, as well as a saxophone. So this is a girl who was very active at school and doesn't sound like a person who sounded shy or someone who would be easily intimidated to me at all. She sounded like a really outgoing young girl who had a real zest for wanting to get everything she could out of school. Now, the sad thing was, though, Rachel, as far as we know, she never had the chance to finish high school. When Rachel was a 14-year-old freshman, she met an 18-year-old boy. So there was quite an age difference. And they began dating, and he became her first official boyfriend. However, knowing her mother would not approve of the age difference, Rachel kept this relationship a secret. But that relationship would soon get revealed. And it gets revealed in the way that I got to tell you as a mom, this would, oh, hell It's like no. a double whammy. It's a double whammy. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Yeah, so in 1994, Rachel's at the local Walmart, and she gets arrested for shoplifting. And so her mom gets the call, you know, your daughter has been arrested for shoplifting. Well, that's horrific. But then she finds out she's arrested for shoplifting a pregnancy test. So here's your 14-year-old daughter picked up for shoplifting and shoplifting a pregnancy test. I think I would have had a nervous breakdown right then. <laughs> That's it. I'm done. I'm out. And 
you know, and this is something, Rachel's mother, Jan, she, of course, is livid. I mean, she is just angry with Rachel. She's demanding to know who the father is. And that's when Rachel tells her about the 18-year-old boyfriend. Now, Jan has a choice to make of how she's going to react in that moment. Jan chooses to go into mama bear mode. She goes straight over to the boy's home, confronts the boy's mother, dragging Rachel in tow. And I mean, she is just screaming at the boy's mom. And the boy, of course, you know, you're confronted with this. And he is like, I don't know anything about this. I've never slept with her. I don't know anything. The mother is calling the girl a liar and all sorts of names. So there is nothing. But, you know, when you see it at that type of confrontation, I can kind of see why things would play out that way. You know what I mean? In a way. You're saying like how it the, the confrontation played out or how it plays out yeah, later? Yeah, I mean, how the, why the boy would go into an immediate denial at that moment. I mean, I uh, some people yeah. kind of tell him, you know, they say, oh, well, he's immediately, you know, a, a suspect in Bedford because he lied. Well... He has his think, mom yeah. screaming at him on the front step in front of his mother. I kind of see why he would immediately go, nope, 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 nope. I don't know anything. It's just how long can you lie about that? Yeah, you can't that. lie very long. But so, and and he does it. He he does take ownership in a, a very big way, because after this huge confrontation, and you know. Jan, Rachel's mom, is yelling at this boy's mother and talking about how her daughter's life, who she's now turned 15 by now, and how her life is destroyed, then she is like, okay, you guys aren't taking responsibility. Jan decides to go to the police department and file charges for statutory rape. So, with, again... Rachel in tow. And Rachel seems to just be going along with whatever is happening. So whenever you look in that situation, uh, that would be like a yeah. deal in the headlights because you have no no clue. Like even dealing with relationships at that point and having your mom in it, but this is this is something much more real. Oh yeah, yeah. So I mean I've just been trying to digest what Rachel had to be going through at that time. I mean, she's the oldest of eight kids. She's got a single mother. You know, she's got the boyfriend. Now she's having to file charges on her boyfriend. And I I, I cannot imagine the tailspin her life is in. So they go to the police department. They file the charges. And... Um, the boyfriend ends up going to the police department and he admits everything. He says that, yes, that was his girlfriend. Yes, he slept with her. Yes, he's the father of her child. On December 31st, 1994, an aggravated indecent liberties with a child case was reported to the Garden City Police Department. 
and Rachel was due to testify as a witness in the unlawful sexual relationships that he engaged with her. And that's one thing, and this might be a time period thing, but when you have a young man who openly is saying, yes, I did this, and the girl is saying he did this, and so you have all these people owning up to it, and I don't know, maybe the mother is saying he didn't do it, but I don't understand why it was going to court that she would have to testify. I, I didn't quite understand why they were taking it to a point that she would have to testify as a witness if he was admitting that he did it. So that's one thing I found a little odd. Yeah, that definitely but, sticks out because you, the court process is always such a long and lengthy ones. And when you have, when you have all the T's crossed and I's dotted, which it seems like the, that is the case here that it wouldn't necessarily be a requirement. Yeah, I just feel like it would be unnecessary torture for her to have to go up on a stand and go through all of this. And like, I, I don't know, at this point, like, I guess it would just be the, the mother trying to keep that boy away from her, her daughter in any way, yeah. shape, or form. But like, what good is this? What good would it do? Like, to it's going to traumatize... It's going to traumatize Rachel. It's going to traumatize the boy who, I mean, it's obviously he's not in, he's definitely can be seen as a manipulator. Neither one of us know what was going on between them yeah. intimately and like the, what the relationship really was like. But that age gap, your maturity level should be a little higher. You should know what you're doing is wrong. So there, is, I think that both sides, like I can definitely see where her mom was coming from, but it's also like, what good can really come from this? Yeah, exactly. And with, with the developments that come. So, yeah. Yes. Very good point. All right. Let's get into those developments. Meantime, Rachel's pregnancy gets confirmed by the local health department. And her mom schedules subsequent doctor's appointments and her prenatal care. You know, we know Rachel's going forward with having the baby and doing the prenatal care and all of that. But then on January 15th, 1995, and this is two weeks after this report for statutory rape is made against her boyfriend, Rachel went and she played in a jazz band concert. Her mother went to go see her at the concert and said that Rachel had four solos and she was very proud of her, got to be able to tell her that. So she was really glad she was able to tell her that. But her mom worked the night shift. Um, so she went to work after that. So she went on into work while the rest of the family stayed at home. And at this moment, we're not sure if there is a stepfather in the home or not. We are sure there's multiple children. Multiple. We are positive that there are multiple children in the home. That is one thing we are absolutely sure of. We know that there are eight children in that house. That is the one thing we are positive of. So Rachel gets home. And the one thing that sticks out to me was that she took off her letterman's jacket. She takes off her letterman's jacket and puts it there. That's one thing her mom did remember before she went to work. 
Rachel took off her letterman's jacket and set it in the house. And then her mom said goodbye to her and she leaves. So then the kids settle in for the movie. So then Rachel had been in the basement with her brother. This is where things get really, really weird. And I got to tell you, this is not something I've ever heard of accidentally happening. So no. Rachel's in the yeah, no. Rachel's in the basement with her brother and he accidentally, we're going to air quote this, he accidentally sets a mattress on fire. Now I thought now I initially thought this was his mattress to his bed. But it gets even weirder because it was the mattress to a rollout bed. So for some reason, he took a rollout bed and set that mattress on fire. So whether that rollout bed is typically out, we don't know. And it was just but, like pretty glossed. I think the first like batch of notes you sent over to me, it was literally so glossed over that I was like, was that a typo? Did I read that right? Like, mattress on fire in the basement and we're just not going to have anything else explaining what happened there. And, like, how something so large and flammable, how would it be controlled? I don't, I don't understand. How would some kids control such a large fire? Right. And, and that's the thing, is something like this happens. And... The way it is handled is this is not anything that police at that time really handled like a overwhelming situation that we're aware of. Or if they did, maybe the family had handled it in a way that police weren't able, and we're going to get into how this mattress situation devolves. So this man, and just yeah, I was just saying in a basement, like in, like yeah. was it? I, I wonder if it was concrete, the flooring, like because I just don't understand I how that house it's gotta be. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, from the way it's, uh, yeah, I I would just, yeah. I, I mean, I'm having so many. The minute somebody tells me before somebody goes missing that a mattress was in, set on fire, my law enforcement brain went into overdrive. Like it's, It was the craziest coincidences very, don't happen like that. Very, very like out of left field <laughs> like why yeah where do we have a history of setting other mattresses on fire like, <laughs> are you the ones keeping all the mattress warehouses in business like, is that how that's a thing <laughs> because i don't understand how that can just be a like an average tuesday evening or what <laughs> like, yes yeah because because that's almost how it's treated yeah there's a mattress on fire. Oh, and then they go watch Swiss Family Robinson. <laughs> and obviously what happens, like, 
and the rest of the evening that death is more like more important yes but i i don't understand <laughs> how it's just literally swept just swept away yes. like just put it on the curb yeah yeah just we're not gonna worry about the mat yeah the the mattress I, oh my oh this mattress this mattress haunts me I I have just so many thoughts on this mattress, but okay. So this mattress gets set on fire and um, her brother says that Rachel assisted him. Now, this is information that they're only able to gain, glean from her brother at this point. So her brother tells her mother that Rachel helped him put it out, and then they together settled in to watch Swiss Family Robinson, because that's what you do after setting a mattress on fire and then putting it out. You know, it's a regular Tuesday night. <laughs> so then at some point throughout this evening, and this is something that um, is interesting to me, because this is Lane, she was three years old. This is her littlest sister. And she says she was the last person to see Rachel. She had woken up in the middle of the night and wanted something to drink. Rachel got her a drink and put her back to bed. And what I don't understand, though, is how they are able to say she is the last person to see Rachel. She's three years old. And half asleep. And half asleep. How are you able to say that she is the last person to see Rachel in the middle of the night when there's obviously a brother watching Swiss Family Robinson in the living room? Who set a mattress on fire. Who set a mattress on fire. Good point. I I have a really hard time with them saying that Lane, the little sister, is the last one who saw Rachel. No, I I really didn't make a note about it, but I was just like, it's interesting that it's, like that's going to be the the noted on record last sighting of her. Yeah. So so far we so, have mattress on fire plus three year old sighting. Okay. Uh, yeah, but. Nobody else has seen her. She gives her something to drink, puts her to bed, but somehow she's the last one. So she's able to get out of the house then without anybody else seeing her with her brother in the living room watching TV. And was she watching watching TV with her brother before? So like did her little sister yes. get her when they were together and then they go to get the water? Like was the, the, the brother verified the water story? Because he would have been um, the last witness, too, technically, then. Now, I have nothing to say whether or not he backs up the water store. Mm -hmm. So she could so, have technically left him at that point and gone to do her own thing in the house. Yeah. Yeah. That is correct. So, now, during this time, Jan, the mom, she calls home to check in around midnight. And the phone line's busy. And it's never busy at midnight. So she's thinking, what the hell is going on at the house? Well, there's a mattress on fire. That's what's going on <laughs> at the house. But 
she's like, what in the world's going on with the house? And she, and this is something else that just, so the line is busy and she immediately goes to something is wrong at the house. I'm going home as a mom. That just strikes me. Um, cause there's no, she calls back repeatedly. It just, she calls the line is busy and she gets a bad feeling and goes home. How many times did she call? She called once. She called more than that. Is there a reason that the line would be busy that she would get a bad feeling? Was it, was it a pay phone? Do we know? Or probably a phone from her work? Yeah, probably phone from her work. So I, I just, is there a reason of her leaving the kids at home that she would have a feeling the kids are unsafe being left at home? And if, let's say maybe there is a stepfather at home. If we're not like, sure if there is a stepfather or not. It was around midnight. That she called, so there's a bit of a gap too before when she actually like makes the decision. Or right, maybe wasn't able to get off of her shift, but I mean, it, it seems like she considered this an, an emergency and she needed to be home. But it's also like a a slow emergency, but she ne there's not like confirmation. Like it's just like twelve o'clock gets the bad feeling and then decides by two to go home. But there's really nothing else to continue to like feed to that bad feeling. Like it. Did she, you're right. Did she yeah. call back? Did she try to like see if there's something wrong or does she have a, a, a like a already established reason to be worried? See, that, that's my thing. Son or a yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> boyfriend who doesn't know how to handle himself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That that's one of my curiosities is what something generally triggers a mom to leap into action even if it's our mom brain we get the little mom tickle well, mom something's not like, right my mom's mom brain is overactive she's always worrying well <laughs> most of ours are a little bit but we have a reason you guys do stuff you guys create it oh i've definitely so it's not mom, our fault for her through a good bit that yeah yeah so yeah <laughs> you all create this you all make us this way so so Jan gets home and she finds her son on the couch and he had fallen asleep while watching the Swiss family or Robinson. Um, Cause you know, it's a very soothing movie after you burn a mattress. So, and she immediately, she's concerned because she doesn't see Rachel. And she was worried that Rachel was down in the basement sleeping in the smoke filled basement. Because again, this is not, and that again leads me to know that this is not a small fire. If she is like, oh my gosh, that basement is so smoky. I don't want her down there. That's a smoky basement. So she didn't want Rachel down there, but he wakes up and he says, I have no idea where Rachel is. Um, so Jan began looking around the house for Rachel and Rachel couldn't be found anywhere. But her letterman's jacket was there. But her regular coat was missing, but her letterman's jacket was still there. And I find that interesting because she gets home, she takes off her letterman's jacket, she puts that over there, but she goes and gets her other coat. 
Okay, I have a question. Like Letterman's jacket, is that kind of like it has the like a letter for their score your name and then you can put like the pins for different sports? Yeah. Though I'm like from what I remember, those are not very comfortable. Or like I remember my being pretty I wear sports. mine all the time still. Okay, I I, my, I did not play sports for very long, definitely not in high school. And it was a Catholic school, so probably on a budget, so we were probably getting the the cheap ones maybe but um maybe she had a more comfortable or more like a if it was it was january so yeah more warm yeah 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 probably that's a good point that that's a good point they aren't as warm they definitely aren't the warmer type of coat Mm -hmm. i will definitely give you that so that's that's a very valid point and then also but if it is identifiable, just, like, if you want to play, if you want to play the... I was just the, thinking that, yes. Yeah, like, you would be able to see that and be like, okay, I saw her with this jacket, and yeah, yeah, versus a, like, like, I can't even think of a jacket name. <laughs> like, I don't, I'm not a coach. Yeah, I can't either. I was like, I, I don't even know go. any jacket names. Yes. <laughs> 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 um, but, so... They, they can't, she left her letterman's jacket behind, but that wasn't the only thing she left behind, of course. And, and I find this, so she, they can't find her anywhere. And if she did decide to run away, though, Rachel wears glasses. Um, at the time, she was wearing glasses. Now, she usually only wears glasses to bed. So she had taken out her contacts and put on her glasses because she was getting ready to go to bed. But if she decided to take off, I know, like any girl, we don't like wearing our glasses. I mean, I have to wear glasses because I have to read and I'm old. But we generally would prefer to wear our contacts. And she left her contacts there. So she didn't take her contact lenses with her. She left her social security card, any of her IDs. um, They were all there. Of course, she didn't have a driver's license yet. She didn't take any other clothing or any of those types of things. So all of that stuff was left behind. Again, the only thing that was missing was Rachel's coat. Now, her mom, she stays up all night waiting for Rachel to come home. And when she doesn't come home by the next day, Rachel's family calls the police. Because this is not something that Rachel does. And um, now Jan says the police were not acting as fast as she would like. Here's where a problem comes in, because let's not forget, we had a very fiery mattress. But the police, well, they end up never coming to the house. They never went. And the mom makes a point of saying this. The police never went downstairs. Yeah, where the mattress was, the that seems like a kind of an important place to look at. Yeah, and the mom even says, the police never came to my house and they never went downstairs. That's where she keeps her clothes. Interesting. So double, double point of interest. that's where the fire is. Yeah, double huh? point of interest there. Uh-huh. So, now, if this is correct, if the police never went there and they never went through the things and we now have these types of evidence there that's a little troubling so there's quite a few reasons 
beyond the fact that Rachel is missing, that they should have checked the house. Now, also, you know, back in those days, they also were thinking, you know, Rachel had the boyfriend. She had these other issues. You know, they're putting her as a runaway, but we know, obviously, as true crimers, know firsthand, you never assume they ran away. You always do a check. You should always do this. And law enforcement, I think, is learning more and more to take these types of things way more seriously. Um, now, law enforcement, they're saying, did not actively do anything until the family started making up missing person flyers and putting them around town. They said once they started doing that, then the police started taking the case seriously. And... I'm bringing this up because if you research this case, this is the only reason I'm bringing up this part of the story. Because this part of the story, there is nothing to back it up. Police have found absolutely no information to validate this at all. I have found absolutely nothing to corroborate it. But... If you go looking for information on this case, you will find this. And I wanted us to talk about it just It's like to one talk of the only things it. you do find. Yeah, it, it is one of the it's sadly one of the only things you do find and it's essentially a rumor. So, one of the things that did happen is a few days after Rachel went missing, is police got a tip about five days after Rachel disappeared when the police actually shortly after the police initiated and said, okay, there is this missing person. Um, a group of girls claimed that they had seen Rachel talking on a payphone outside of Dylan's grocery store. And Dylan's is like our Kroger and that kind of thing. Um, and they claimed that it was Rachel and her boyfriend. And that they had finished a call, left the phone booth, and then they approached the girls for a ride. The pair then went into the Dillon's grocery store. Now, the boyfriend denies he was ever at the store and ever had any contact with Rachel after her disappearance. Now, police have looked at video. They have looked at everything. They can find nothing to corroborate the story. But unfortunately, it has kind of taken on a life of its own, and it's gotten more focused than the mattress has. And it's like, that's a sighting that really has no solid information. Like, even if it was verified, like, even if we did have, like, a video, even if we knew it to be true, what could we get from that? Not much. Like, they asked for Good a ride. Good point, yeah. They're looking for a ride, but, like... Not much, but you know what we do have is a freaking mattress that was yes. set ablaze on fire, and it's just treated like a ho hum, like this is normal. Yes. And except, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, and it, it, it yeah. definitely We're just shows. We're going the, to continue to gloss over that. It shows the infatuation with the boyfriend, and like yeah. kind of keeping him like connecting him to the disappearance because he wasn't connected to the disappearance until this sighting and i mean obviously people right. are going to talk but like this is an official connection for, to the to the story so that's probably one of the reasons why it is one of the only ones that is told because it it 
is it gives people reason to talk. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I like how you put that. It's, it's, that is exactly it. It's people want to keep that boyfriend tied into this case. Now, we there are reasons I could see. I mean, obviously, there is a statutory rape charge. And after Rachel went missing, that charge did go away. He no longer had the charge against him. That charge was dropped. So that did occur. But there is nothing else. I mean. And we wouldn't even have the charge. Like we wouldn't even have this official charge if he didn't own up to it and didn't admit to it because we didn't have a trial because it would never it never went to trial and we don't even have any right. sort of documentation of the trial so like the only like the only way i mean i guess yeah they they hadn't gone to any appointments yet and they wouldn't be able to test for like any proof that he was the father right. so the only way we know he is the father is from his own mouth so why i just don't see i don't see why he's such a scapegoat in this situation when exactly he, he would he would be the one that literally dug his own grave yeah, exactly. I mean, he would know that he would be the primary suspect. She goes missing. There's a case against him. He's got to know he's going to be the first one looked yeah, at. Yeah, yeah. And that he's it already just probably not doesn't really make sense. Among yeah. the adults of the town. Yeah. Especially the ones and with daughters. Yeah, it, the fact it that just... his mom was in the grocery store... Like, this makes it even seem, because if somebody saw his mom there, then they maybe could have just been grasping at strings. And then how many people saw his mom there? How many people could back up the fact that at least his mom was there? So then probably he was there. So then probably this story is true. So like that definitely seems like the story was maybe somebody with a vendetta. Yeah. Yeah, to me, it seems like, again, a bunch of girls who, yeah, they may have seen the mom there and thought, oh, well, he must be there. And, you know, we think he did it. We're going to get him in trouble because she's missing because of him. It's his fault. You know how the teenage mind works. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's just a spiral. And the whole time all of this is going on, there's a burnt up mattress sitting <laughs> on Kurt somewhere. Yep. So it's all I'm doing is thinking of the evidence that's just sitting somewhere that is just being ignored. And it, it just makes me absolutely insane. And possible evidence, I should say. So um, now since Rachel went missing all of this time, her social security number has never been used. Um. There is no evidence she ever gave birth anywhere, and her whereabouts still remain a mystery. Now, at the time of her disappearance, Rachel Geraldine Pratt was just a 15-year-old girl who was dating an 18-year-old boy. Then she finds herself pregnant in 1995, embroiled in a legal case where she must testify against the father and she's in an impossible position. So I just feel for this poor girl. Now, Rachel, at the time of her disappearance, was five foot seven inches tall, brown hair, brown eyes. She usually wore contact lenses. However, 
she did not have him on the night she went missing from her home. Today, Rachel would be 44 years old and her baby would be 27 years old if she is still alive. Rachel has many family members and friends who wonder every day where she might be and they need answers. The not knowing is many times harder than playing out the multiple scenarios every day. The wondering, could it be this? Could she still be there? Or could all of these horrific things have happened to her? And trust me, when it, the not knowing is so much harder than the knowing. And how do you even begin to deal with it if you don't know what it is? Yeah. How can you can't? Yeah, I, I have seen it so much in so many cases where. It's just heartbreaking. And once a, the body has been found, the torture and the grief that they go through, but then you hear them talk about the relief of just knowing they don't have to search anymore. They don't. They actually have some sort of answer. They can and, focus on remembering and yeah. making it a good, well, not, you can't really make that a good thing, but focusing on the good and letting the good live on what, rather than worrying about the present. And then they can go forward with justice. You've, you've got, you know where they are. Now it's time to take care of who might have done this to their person. So now what I really appreciate is how the Garden City Police Department is leaving no stone unturned in this investigation. In 2018, this is just really blew my mind when I, I started down this rabbit hole. In 2018, a detective with the Garden City Police Department flew to California to interview Rennie Pratt. Now, I was like, I know that name. So Rennie Pratt is Rachel's sister. Rennie Pratt was convicted of voluntary manslaughter of her boyfriend, Michael Porcella. Now, detectives followed up with Rennie throughout the years for any additional information. And I, like I said, I, I knew that name. I knew that name because I'd been digging. And I started communicating with Garden City Police Department because Rennie Pratt has been on Snapped. And if anybody watches true crime, they've heard of Snapped. Especially if you're a woman, you've definitely heard of Snapped. It's all about women snapping and doing bad things out there. <laughs> and I, I, I mainly know of it because it's Bill Hader and Larry David's favorite show. And I love those two guys. So, um, two women. That was my favorite. <laughs> oh, Candace DeLong. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Rennie Pratt is on an episode of Snapped where she kills her boyfriend who was an attorney in California. So of course, as I started going down my rabbit hole of this case, I started pulling up court transcripts. Now a court transcript, People versus Pratt, which was provided, provided by legal, it talked about in one spot how Rennie had attempted to take her own life. She testified that on an incident in February of 2009, 
She texted the father of her children, telling them she had taken 14 to 18 Trim Spa pills. They're an over-the-counter diet pill. And she did that because she was thinking about the time her stepfather had raped her sister. And she just couldn't take it anymore. And so she took these pills because she didn't want to think about it anymore. And she wanted to kill herself. And her boyfriend at the time, the wonderful, caring person he was, said, well, you're a drama queen. I don't want to deal with it anymore. And I'm breaking up with you. So shortly after that, she kills him. It's an interesting episode, but I thought this was interesting. So I went back you, and I shared this with the Garden City Police Department. The sister that was assaulted, what is it specific? I want to make sure we have here that it is allegedly assaulted. We don't know for sure whether or not she was assaulted. Which sister? It is not specific as to which sister. It is just a very short line out of all of the texting conversations she has with herself and the father of her children. Which was the and attorney. And it's not exact. It's just a... I was trying to see if there was more. The problem is... is and because they were only able to get certain pieces into the deposition that had to do with the case. And that piece had to do with the fact of shortly after that, her boyfriend. And so they allowed that into the courtroom. So it was able to go into the court deposition. So they weren't able to subpoena all of her phone records. But I was able yeah. to get that little piece. And it, it was like, really oh, matter. I want more. It wouldn't have mattered to that case who it was. Right. Other than her being, damn. And it's that that connection, very like, who would have made that connection if you weren't here digging through all this? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Who would have found that? I mean, it is literally. Because it seems like. Thousands of paperwork. So. It seems like you made that. Like we talked about this a couple weeks back, and like the basics of it, and that's when I was looking into it. And then you like the, within this past week is when you really started talking about this. So it's like it really shows that there is stuff. There's definitely stuff out there. Right, and, and what was interesting to me is I didn't even catch the stepfather thing, and now I'm starting to work my way backwards. Because, yeah. Who was, and, who was there that night? Like, who was, why is there some exactly. report of a man there? And now why is this suspicious man who is a mystery man, who is who has sexually assaulted a mystery, like, daughter? Like, all of these things are yeah. so gray. And, yeah, and a situation yeah. where it would be. Then Jan hasn't moved. She still lives in the same house. She still has the same phone number in case Rachel ever comes sad, back. That doesn't sound like a mom who wasn't there for her kids, wasn't diehard for her kids. So to me, it, it just, something doesn't feel right. So if there was somebody else there, I don't, it doesn't sound like a mom who would leave her kids alone. No, and it's, but uh, it's just weird. Like, this is, it, 
thinking about that, like taking the fact that this woman has never left that home on the slim chance that she could call the number, she could return home. And then like the night of though, like was that whole, what you were talking about earlier, like, I, I don't know if obvious, like obviously even having nothing to do with it, you still carry guilt of like being associated in any way. But is that in some way associated with like her response or like maybe her knowing something that's not huh. necessarily out there? I, because the whole the whole stepdad and the man thing and we don't know that situation is very it does it gives us a lot of like it makes your head spin it just makes your head spin and you all these things like are I don't know and it's and then again you're talking on somebody else's loved one and you're talking about so you don't want to be too like oh this can be the case but it's just like how, what else are we supposed to do when we are given. 42 pieces of a 100 piece puzzle yeah yeah exactly he like that's just he's in nothing like the fact that the boyfriend's identity is protected completely understandable that makes perfect sense yeah he would be harassed and probably so is harassed to this day because of this case but this is not that this is not that this is something that i feel like the family well, you would hope would just come out and clear it up be- because it's then yeah that's just something that would yeah. make the situation a lot different because if he was in the house why was the mattress set on fire in the first place what is going on there well sister obviously they know the family has information for them to feel the need to continuously talk to the family they feel like there is something there that there somebody in the family had to have seen something that night know something the that, that night using these rev, like these avenues the true crime podcast to try to get the word yeah. out to anybody and everybody because somebody and you hear this in every case somebody knows something but in this case it seems like the only people that can know something are very very close to the case like very exactly. close to the town, very close to, there's no, like, there's no, I mean, there's always a possibility of them being taken far away, but there's not like, there's not evidence that she was in a situation where being trafficked was a possibility. Like she just came from a school concert. She was a high schooler. Like there, we don't have a lot of the pieces that we do for when women go missing. And it is a big yeah. mystery. Like somebody knows something, but are they even in this country? Are they like, where are they? Like, but this, this seems like somebody knows something and they're in the tri-state area. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely, in, in this case, it seems like this is somebody that was close to Rachel. And yeah, somebody who is close to Rachel knows something. And they've been holding on to this for a long time. And it is time to give that information up. You know, it's long enough. and. Somebody needs to just come clean and just have one piece of honest information. Just tell us what the hell happened to the mattress. Just give us that. We just want to talk about the mattress. Just tell us what happened there. I just like, I I really want to know if there there was a pattern. Like I, if like, is it was that little boy a pyromaniac? 
Because I'm like, I, yeah. I, I'm like, I'm a slight pyromaniac. I don't know, but that I've never set <laughs> no mattress on fire. Like that's definitely taking it up some notches. Has it evolved? Like where is what is going on there now? Yeah, did he have a history of maybe like setting a few things on fire and doing that kind of stuff? So this was typical, and this is not odd that type of behavior is a little bit of a troublemaker okay then we are off the beaten path okay then just talk to us about that and tell us what we need to be looking for to find rachel to get that information where do we need to look for to find rachel i'm just now having a like kind of like almost like a light bulb moment this is definitely a possible like theory of what could have happened and but then it goes back to the mattress. So like we know that there was a mattress on fire and that the oldest individual in the house to deal with it that we know of for a fact was 14. So let's say that there wasn't any man in the home, then maybe the oldest sibling, the most responsible sibling would have left as quickly as she could to go to another adult's home for help. She could have grabbed a jacket just to go outside and like that could have been the reason why she left. But I guess now that doesn't make sense because they had gotten the fire put out and they were already settled back down. But even if he, she could have gone to maybe the wrong neighbor's house and just informed them that, hey, we just had this fire and then they knew that nobody was over there. No parents were over there. It's the middle of the night. They were aware that there's children in an unwatched home. And that maybe- well, Why was the phone busy? The, what you say, when was the phone busy? Yeah. Why was the oh, phone why busy? Was the phone busy. Yeah, yeah. Who was who was calling who? Yeah. Yeah. See, that's yeah, that's, that's something that's, that's, that sticks that's, out that's, to me is why was the phone busy? And that's I don't. You're right because the only like I hear the phone's busy and the only thing I've thought of with this case is that's the reason why her mom went home. Nothing else. But why was the phone busy? Who was she calling? Why was the phone busy? Because it wasn't the fire department. We know that. Yeah. So, I mean, my thought is, is when I think about the phone busy, that's why I asked, how many times did she call? Now, if she called once and the phone was busy, yeah, then there's somebody who was on the phone and then I could see Rachel was calling her boyfriend when she shouldn't have or something like that or calling a friend. Um, but if she called repeatedly and the phone was busy repeatedly, that makes me think the phone was off the hook for some reason and something big was happening. Did phones back then, like, did they beep when you got, when you got a call and you were on a call like they do now? So like, would you, are you aware that you're getting another call? Could she, um, have, could she have just been on the phone with her boyfriend? You and... could have like two way calling. Yeah. You could have where it would beep and you'd okay. the little thing and do that. But, but there is maybe a possibility that she was just on the phone with her boyfriend the entire time. And like, wasn't aware that her mom was trying to call is that or is that, that that is a possibility. a possibility yeah it seems unlikely because it was two in the morning and she had a fire to put out but yeah yeah but i mean it's interesting when she says her mom called at midnight and i i'd, I'd be interested to see what time the fire was yeah that gap is a big it's it's a big yeah, the timeline yeah. to me is I would really like to know the, the exact time. Do you leave for work? Do you 
Do we know? Um, see, I don't have an exact time of when she left for work. She went to work shortly after the concert was done. You would assume it would be an eight-hour shift, and she's coming home at four, right? So maybe yeah. around ten. No, no, because that would been that would that would be like an eight to four, which maybe she took a not an eight-hour shift because of the concert. Yeah, I mean, but I could see a lot of the concerts. Yeah, they would finish about nine, ten o'clock. Mm -hmm. I would see back in those days. So even if she's not working a full eight hour, she's working a six hour shift, or you know, we don't know what type of job she had. Because, but it, um, I'm not making that up. She was supposed to come home at four, right? Is that was that right. some, okay? Okay. Yeah, she was supposed to come home at four. So, but I mean, I couldn't see her leaving any earlier than about 10-ish. No, but not with the concert and then going home from so the concert. So that's where I'm like, okay, and then she calls at midnight. And I, I reading over the notes and stuff, I thought that um, Rachel just came home from the concert. I didn't know that her mom actually went to the concert and I thought they had just talked about it at home. But if she had been to the concert with her... <sighs> Yeah, I was able to finally, I was going through articles, and I had found an article where her mom did an anniversary article for Cake, where she said she was able to um, go to her concert, and she saw her do her solo, and she was glad that she was actually able to go and see her do that. And she was really glad she chose to go to that and see that now. Very special memory, so, after. yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, this case, like I said, this case does not add up. I mean, a lot of it is is because it's an older case. It's really hard to track down all the answers, but it has a lot of weird little side notes. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a lot of weird information in this case that it just seems like things weren't followed up on. Or people didn't, see, it didn't seem to bother anybody. It was just normal things that happen that we know are not normal. And it, it, it's just all sorts of bizarre. And so, yeah, this, this case has truly just boggled my mind. Um, for anybody out there who wants to watch the episode of Snapped with Rennie Pratt's case, it is season nine, episode 12. Um, and again, if anybody, anyone at all, any piece of information that you have that could help in this case, and it doesn't matter. I, I, I refer back to the one case that somebody had called in and all it was is a yellow shirt stuck out to somebody. And they called that in, and that little piece ended up solving a case. Anything you might have, you don't know how big or small it might be, could end up solving a case, no matter how old that case is. If you have any information that could help at all, please contact the Garden City Police Department at 620-276-1300. And if you wish to remain anonymous, you can call Crime Stoppers at 620-275-7807 or text your tip to GCPD by texting GCT 
T-I-P, and then TIP to T-I-P-411 or 847-411. I really appreciate Patrick coming with me on this crazy roller coaster ride we call the Rachel Pratt case because this has been completely insane. And I am actually getting ready to team up with him on one of his cases, so... So, so happy and so honored that you asked me to come on this case. It definitely is was very special to you and you worked very hard on it. And the fact that the Garden City Police Department reached out to you was obviously something that meant a lot to you. So the fact that you asked me to share this case with you is very, um, very touching. And I very I appreciate that a lot. And it was, it's definitely one that doesn't add up. And the fact that we're not talking about what doesn't add up doesn't add up even more. Because nor- like, yeah. like today's day and age, like that's all we like to do is talk about the stuff that doesn't add up. And it's not being done. And uh, granted, this is an undercover smaller case. So hopefully with this, more people will be. Absolutely. So thank you so much. And a shout out to the Garden City Police Department. I hope we did some justice on getting some information out there. And we will continue to promote the case as much as we can and share her missing poster and try to stir up as much information on social media. And we really hope somebody will come forward and share some information about this case. The fact that the, so thank you. Yeah, the fact that this police department has been willing to use us as a resource and to spread the word, I think it is showing that anything, anything as small or large as can be very helpful to them and that would they would appreciate you reaching out with them any information. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much, Patrick. Thank you, Marianne. All right. Talk soon. Talk soon. Sources for this podcast are in the show notes if you would like to research this case further. Remember, it's not only the work of the investigators that solve these cases. It's the social media platforms that reminds the victim's families as well as the person or persons who committed these crimes that we haven't forgotten. We keep the victims' cases and faces in the forefront to get them solved. Thank you to all of you social detectives that understand sharing these cases, podcasts, hashtags, or what keep these cases active until they're solved. Until our next case, be safe.